Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. You know, if you really like Detroit Today, but you're sitting in your car about to get out and go into work, or you're just about to move on with your day, you can hear today's full edition of Detroit Today on the Detroit Today podcast. You can go wherever you download podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you find them, and subscribe and download, and then you can listen to Detroit Today anywhere or anytime you want to. Up first today, we've been hearing reports for several years now about the slow erosion of the middle class here in America, that there's a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. Some would say the problem is a loss of good-paying jobs in the manufacturing sector, such as with the auto industry, but others suggest policy is the problem, the creation of a society that benefits from keeping poor people Poor. Whatever the cause is, my next guest argues that the loss of a middle class threatens the American Constitution and our democracy. I want to welcome Ganesh Sidaraman. He is a professor of law at Vanderbilt Law School and the author of The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. So uh, this this concept that you start with in the title, the middle class constitution, what do you mean when you say that? So what I mean by a middle class constitution is a constitution that's premised on the idea that a society has a big middle class. And that means relative economic equality, not too much of a rich, not too much of, of a poor. Uh, and this was uh, the idea behind our constitution. And I know that that may seem surprising uh, to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, um, if you think about you... the constitution itself, it doesn't address economic issues this way directly. It doesn't say middle class, doesn't say economic equality, doesn't say economic inequality. Right. None of those terms are, are in the constitution. But the context of the founding is what's really important. And when you think back to the founding of this country, to the late 18th century, what's really striking is to the people in America, which at the time is just a, a small number of settlements on the eastern seaboard, uh, you know, medium-sized towns like Philadelphia or New York, um, they are very different than the center of the universe for them, sure. which is Western Europe. It's London, it's Paris, it's England. And, and what's different is there's no feudalism in America. There's no hereditary aristocracy in America. The richest people in America, people like George Washington, who have great lands and nice houses, are just nothing compared to the dukes and duchesses of England uh, with their big marble palaces. Uh, and America has one other thing. It has these vast lands to the West, which means that any white man, and it was limited to white men at the time, yeah. could move West and get get a plot of land and be part of the economic independence that was necessary to have this kind of republic. And, and those were the conditions that the founders looked out on and built our constitution on. And they assumed those conditions would continue, these conditions of relative equality. Yeah. Uh, I, I talk about uh, the emergence of sort of our modern view of economic equality and inequality through sort of, I guess, several different uh, instances in our in our history. So, as you point out, the founding uh, takes place. You you get this constitution. You have a, a new republic. Uh, the second founding, I think, is also an important part of that, where we fight a war. After that, we uh, amend the constitution three times to inculcate. Uh, a, a different kind of equality into it, an equality that it had not known uh, before that. And then I also sort of point to the 1930s as yet another sort of 
I guess, maturation maybe of that uh, that notion of uh, American e- economics, where uh, President Roosevelt decides to really push hard on the notion that government's role with regard to uh, regulating uh, the private industry uh, and and business uh, is it should be motivated by some eye toward economic. Equality. You you talk about uh, many of these things also in your book. Uh, talk about though the place that we come to uh, by the time we're in the 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 the, the beginning of the twenty first century, uh, and this idea that opportunity uh, and equality are part of uh, just foundational parts of America. So, uh, you know, you're right about about the big arc. So we have the the Civil War and Reconstruction, a big moment in our history. Uh, There's the New Deal, which is often thought about as a big moment. And I think in between, we often forget, uh, but for the participants in it, the Progressive Era and the Gilded Age, the period in the late 19th century, early 20th century, was as defining a moment, uh, some commentators at the time said, as 1776 was, the founding of the country, or 1861, the beginning of the Civil War. And they thought the rising economic inequality of the Gilded Age was as great a crisis as those two crises in American history and as big a motivator for the kinds of reforms that were needed in the first founding uh, and the second founding of Reconstruction. Yeah. And so we ha- we really have this long reform period from the Progressive Era through the New Deal, I think. Um, and what happens after the New Deal, you know, is something that seems familiar to us. Um, and it's that we have this big boom period. We have about 30 years that economists call the Great Compression in which GDP goes up, median wages go up. We build America's great middle class, uh, and we do it with good-paying jobs. We do it with benefits that are, in some cases, provided by employers. In some cases, come through the government. We have Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start. And so in this era, we both build the middle and we lift up the poor. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is after about 30 years of success there— Um, We turn in a very different direction. In the last 30 years or 40 years, what we've seen is a policy set of shifts where we now uh, had a country focusing on uh, lowering tax cuts for the wealthiest people, deregulating industries, allowing concentration of economic power into uh, monopolies and, and oligopolies, uh, so small concentrations into a small number of firms. Uh, and the result after 30 years of or 40 years of that was the great crash of 2008 uh, and then the deep economic insecurity that we've been in uh, since then and, and really before that, uh, slowly kind of seeping into over the years. And uh, so those changes that change change in, in the idea of that economic equality and this shift, as you point out, toward, I guess, a, a more selfish view of capitalism and the relationship between government and business. It's intentional. It's not, it's not something that just develops. Uh, you have one political party in particular that is that is very aggressive about it. You have another political party that at minimum, I think, can be described as complicit uh, in that change. But I guess the question is, what changes in the culture that that makes that possible? What is it? What is it that inspires these changes that we now see threatening the republic? 
So it's a great question. And I think what, what happens after World War II is that there are three really big changes uh, that allow for this era uh, in, the, the, in the kind of post-1980s uh, era to, to emerge. The first change is that the New Dealers really win a lot of the big fights. So there was a lot of debate from the founding of this country through the New Deal um, about economic issues in constitutional terms. Economic inequality was seen as a threat to our constitutional system, and it would undermine our republic, turning us into an oligarchy or an aristocracy. And that was a live concern that people had for, for, for decades, for generations. After, world, after the New Deal, uh, everybody agrees, and the Supreme Court agrees, that the federal government is allowed to address economic issues uh, under the Constitution, and we lose this kind of uh, argument about the constitutionality of of of, of of equality. The second thing that happens is that um, we have the Cold War, and bef before World War II, generations of Americans coming to this country came from Western Europe, and the idea of an aristocracy that that wasn't something you read about in ancient history books. That was real. You left an aristocracy in England or France or somewhere right. in Western Europe to come to a republic, to America. So this was a live uh, debate for them. After World War II, that debate becomes a debate between communism and capitalism. And in that context, the egalitarian streak in communism uh, is something people are fearful of, and they then shy away from the egalitarian streak in our own American tradition that had existed for 150 years prior to that moment. Yeah. The third thing that happens is that it succeeds. You know, we actually go through this boom period, as I mentioned, where we built a big middle class. And so in large sense, in a time when everyone feels like they're doing better and is becoming more prosperous, it opens up the opportunity uh, for people to forget that the way we got there was by building that together. And I think a kind of, as you said, a selfishness can emerge uh, just from the amount of success that we actually had as a country in that period. Yeah. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Ganesh Sitaraman. He is a professor of law at Vanderbilt Law School and the author of The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. We are talking about the threat that economic inequality, growing economic inequality, poses to our constitution, to our republic, to the way we think of ourselves as Americans in an economic sense. What role does opportunity play in our constitutional Americanism? Uh, Professor, I want to also ask you about uh, the things that we're seeing now at the upper end of the economic scale. We talk a lot about the middle class and the sort of crunch there, the the, the permanency of poverty uh, that, that is emerging. But there's also this trend at the top where at least the perspective of people at the top is that they can't keep up or that they can't maintain what they have for the next generation. Uh, and we've seen this sort of erosion uh, play out in in some dramatic ways uh, with the loss of lots of white-collar jobs, for instance, uh, the closing of, of businesses. Is this also related to the, the economic inequality that you're talking about, or is that a separate phenomenon? So I think of this as as related. The you know the the middle class, uh, working class and middle class jobs, and the kind of shrinking middle class, the insecurities of people in the middle class, I think is is exactly related to to inequality. And and part of the reason it's related uh, is because you know 
in theory, it's the kind of thing where you can imagine equality where everybody is poor or equality where everybody's rich. But in reality, every society has some differences. And when you have a big middle class, you tend to have less inequality, less rich and poor. When you have a small middle class, you have more rich and poor. Um, what's happened in America recently is that we have increasing amounts of our country's wealth going to the very, very richest people. So in 1976, the top 1% of Americans took home about eight and a half percent of the country's income. These days, it's more than 20 percent that they take home. So that means a ton of America's wealth is going to the very, very tippy top people who are uh, amount of the wealthiest people. <laughs> and, and, you know, I know a lot of people might say, well, that's fine. People work hard. They're, they're lucky. They, they, they make it big. Uh, and that's right to some extent. But, but policy does shape that. Uh, and the other half is that when those people get very wealthy, it gives them influence over policy. So the wealthiest people in this country have more money to be able to spend to influence campaigns, lobby Congress, uh, and get the rules changed that then can make it easier for them to continue to get wealthy. And this actually creates a cycle that I think is very, very hard to get out of yeah. in which our policies stop being representative of all the people and stop uh, uh, really pushing forward the common good, the public good. And instead, they entrench the privileges of just an elite few. Yeah. Uh, and so in the book, you finally sort of turn to this idea of solutions, uh, the idea that, that this is not a lost cause, uh, this is a threat that we can turn back. What are some of the things, though, that, that, that you believe we've got to do to go in a different direction? So I think there's two really big categories. And and the inspiration from these categories comes from about 100 years ago during the Gilded Age and Progressive Era when the people of that period faced similar challenges. And that was industrialization, the really, shift, really big shift from agriculture and artisanal work to factory work and industry. Yes. And at that time, what people did is two things. The first thing they did was they realized they had to reshape the economy to make the economy more democratic. And they called this economic democracy. And and the ideas here were, were actually really creative. They came up with antitrust laws to break up big consolidations of economic power. They passed a constitutional amendment for the income tax so that people who have greater resources could pay more. And then the other thing they tried to do was make us more of a political democracy so that the wealthy wouldn't have an undue influence on our political processes and on the policy outcomes. And so they passed the first campaign finance regulations in this period. And they also had the democratic election of senators instead of the selection of senators by the state legislatures, which is how it had been before that. And so those two categories, I think, are where we need to look again today. Things like revival of an antitrust policy, an anti-monopoly policy thinking about uh, the wealthiest paying their fair share in taxes, uh, and then other things uh, to help build the middle class, education, infrastructure, uh, you know, focusing on uh, raising the minimum wage, uh, supporting unions, uh, which are one of the only organizations out there that actually advocate for working class people, both uh, who are members of the union and who are not members of the union. Sure. Um, and so that's a big part of what we need to do on the economic side. And then on the political side, you know, we need to take action in campaign finance reform and lobbying uh, reform and try to actually make our political system more representative of the people. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Ganesh Siddharaman. He is a professor of law at Vanderbilt Law School, author of the book, The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. We are 
are talking about economic inequality, the role that it plays in a constitutional framework as a threat to our republic, as a threat to democracy. Uh, Professor, before I let you go, I want to talk about the things that push back against those solutions that you were just talking about, Uh, the divisions that still exist in society that go beyond class. So, for instance, lots of uh, poor whites, for instance, uh, believe that the biggest threat to their getting ahead is not wealthier uh, people, but black people who are also poor or immigrants who are also poor. And the political infrastructure in this country uh, has become pretty good at manipulating uh, that that idea, manipulating that line in a way that pits those two, uh, those those different factions against each other and prevents us from being able to talk about solutions uh, in much broader terms. W- what is the solution to that? I mean, that's a problem that dates uh, to, to the founding as well, this idea of uh, racial or uh, other kinds of cultural divisions playing into economic inequality. Yeah. So, you know, from before the founding, we've had a problem in this country of people trying to divide and conquer and basically break up working class people uh, by race uh, and keep them divided. And what that does is it enables uh, the wealthier people to entrench their power and pursue their own interests uh, at the expense of working class people. And throughout our history, there have actually been movements that have tried to push back against this uh, in in some cases in very surprising places and at very surprising times. So in the 1890s, for example, as I describe in the book, in, in Georgia, uh, there's a candidate for governor named Tom Watson who tries to bring together a biracial coalition of working class blacks and whites right. in order to break the power of of the planter aristocracy uh, that is running the South uh, at their own benefit at the expense of both blacks and whites. And so Tom Watson is against lynchings. Uh, he's for supporting both groups. Uh, and he and, and, and this is an amazingly innovative moment um, and, and an inspiring moment. And it's crushed by racism, fraud, force and violence. And that is a theme that has existed throughout our history. But there have been people who've tried to push against this. And in fact, in some of our greatest eras of progress, the reason we've been able to succeed uh, economically when you think about Medicare or a lot of other policies uh, in the 60s is because we had a coalition of people who were interested in bringing together working class people uh, both on racial questions and on economic questions. You know, and we often forget this, but, you know, when Martin Luther King uh, gives the I Have a Dream speech in Washington, it's at the March for Jobs and Freedom. It's both political freedom and it's economic justice. And that applies uh, not just to African-Americans. It applies to whites as well. And Martin Luther King spends the last years of his life working in the in the poor people's movement yes. uh, as a way to lift up everybody. And this is part of our story. And so I think going forward, one of the things we need to do uh, as a people, as a country, is recognize that we are stronger when we are united and that when we uh, and that all of us have shared economic challenges that we need to work on together uh, and that that's the only way we're going to actually get change uh, because the entrenched powers in, in Washington and in state capital and all over the place, the one thing they want is to keep people divided because when everyone's united, it mu- makes change much more uh, yeah. much more viable. And you point to things like the Poor People's Campaign in the late 1960s, which was uh, a, a biracial, broad-based movement on this. 
it it it, it dies. It dies with uh, the death of Martin Luther King. It dies with the death of Robert Kennedy, uh, and and we move into a different era. What's the what's the mechanism of revival though for that kind of thinking? So revival happens because we believe in revival. I mean, there's no magic to politics. Uh, The magic of it in a democracy is that we all take action and that we do things. Um, And throughout the history of our country, when we've had progress, when we've looked into the kind of dark abyss of the future, the reason why we've been able to push through is because people did it. And there was nothing magical about, uh, you know, Tom Watson trying in the 1890s to do that. It was just people going out and saying, we believe that we're better than this and we're going to, to change and, and we're going to make a better world. And I think that's all it takes. It takes us talking about it. It takes us working on it. It takes people getting active in their communities to try to push in this direction. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that may be hard because, you know, there's a lot of forces that, that push against that. But, you know, throughout our history, what we've seen are people who are really mobilized and getting out there and marching in the streets, going on strike. Uh, lobbying their their representatives, um, you know, when they come home for town hall meetings. But that's the kind of thing that actually does create change over time. And it, and it can't be done with one uh, hero who saves us. It can't be done with one president. Uh, it happens over many, many years and in some cases, many decades. But it is a doable thing if we stay engaged and mobilized. And in fact, you know, that's really a critical thing about what it means to have a republic, a representative democracy, sure. is that we the people get to govern ourselves. But that means that it's incumbent on us to do that and to get involved and to stay active. Okay. Ganesh Sitaraman, professor of law at Vanderbilt Law School and author of The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. Thanks very much for being with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much. It's been great to be here. Absolutely. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the American middle class. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking this hour about the middle class in America. Is it in indefinite decline? Will we ever see a middle class as strong as it was in the middle of the 20th century when cities like Detroit flourished on the growth of middle class life? And what are the economic factors at play in the growth or the shrinkage of the middle class? We also want to hear from you. What do you think about the idea of the growth or the shrinking of the middle class? Do you think of yourself as middle class? And what does that mean? How do you define those things? And do you feel like being middle class now, maintaining that middle class status is harder than it used to be. Is it harder than it was five years ago? Is it harder than it was 20 years ago? Is it harder just since the the, the Great Recession, uh, the, the huge housing crisis we had that sent the economy south for a really long time? Talk to us about what you define as middle class and what you think needs to be done to make it easier for people to either get into the middle class or to maintain that middle class status. 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. That's 
You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Also talk about what you think it means to be middle class in the Trump era. Uh, The president made a lot of the idea of protecting the middle class, bringing back middle class jobs during the campaign. His first months in office have seen uh, a sort of focus, at least in rhetoric, on those issues. He's claiming to be bringing jobs back a lot uh, from overseas, Uh, plans to to do more of that, especially in the manufacturing sector. Uh, Does this appeal to you? Do you feel like Donald Trump is the answer to some of the middle class woes that we've had in this country for some time? Or do you think that the class divisions he is inspiring, the racial divisions he's inspiring, for instance, are exacerbating the sort of class difference that we have. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, joining me now to continue this conversation is Dean Baker. He's the co-director for the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Dean, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, let's start with this, this sort of central question here. Are we losing the middle class in this country? Are we losing the ability for most people to aspire to that middle class? Uh, and if that's true, what are the factors that are driving that? Well, we certainly made the situation in the middle class much worse. So if we think back, and of course, it's a little bit idealized, then obviously, you know, people could jump on me. I'm going to say this right off the bat. This is disproportionately a white story, white male story. So if you go back 30, 40 years ago, white male with just a high school degree could be reasonably confident in being able to get a factory job that would pay him enough money to have a house, send his kids through school, his wife may or may not work. You know, you could tell that story again, somewhat idealized, but there's also a lot of truth to that. And certainly, you know, I, you know, I went, did my graduate work in Michigan, so I know the state well. Um, you know, certainly the auto workers, unionized jobs in the auto industry, that was certainly true. The number of jobs you could say that of today is way fewer. People have much less security. And we have huge expenses today we didn't have then. So college, you know, wasn't cheap when I went to school, but, you know, you could afford a state university without sure. a big pay and a uh, big, big salary. And uh, even the private universities uh, weren't as anywhere near as expensive as they are today. And, of course, health care was a, a fraction of the cost. It just wasn't that big a deal, which isn't to say people don't care about their health and everything. But, yeah, health care insurance was not – you weren't looking at paying, you know, ten or 15000 a year for a health insurance policy for a single individual. Um, today, of course, you, you often are, particularly, you know, depending how the Affordable Care Act, uh, the repeal, replacement, whatever – how that turns out. I mean, people, uh, older workers could well be paying fifteen, twenty thousand even for their health care insurance. Uh-huh. So, so that certainly deteriorated, made the situation of what we might think of as the middle class as considerably worse. Are they still a middle class? You could argue that, but you know, uh, you don't have the sort of security that people would have had forty years ago. And and what's the tension between? Uh, what's the policy tension, I guess, between trying to maintain the idea of what the middle class is and securing uh, the people who are in it and the growing numbers of people who are trapped in poverty and unable to get into the middle class? What's the relationship between those two groups of people? I think in a political sense, they are often juxtaposed uh, to each other. Uh, but I'm not sure, I guess, from an economic or a cultural sense that they should be. 
Yeah, well, this is, to my view, again, a very, very interesting story, very, very important story. I mean, to my view, looking back at the 60s, which tremendously successful decade economically, this was when the middle class really thrived, big wage gains for for people at the 30, 40, 50, 60th percentile, people in the middle, and, you know, definition, you know, they're in the middle of the income distribution, sure. but also gains at the bottom as well. And those two were not in opposition, so they went kind of hand in hand. So as uh, middle-class workers were seeing this situation improved, places opened up for those at the bottom. So, and, and again, I don't mean to idealize it, horrible poverty, horrible discrimination, but people's situation was improving. It was going in the right direction. That really starts to change in the 70s, changes in a big way in the 80s. And we often see a situation today where you have people saying, well, you know, take a worker getting $20 an hour, you know, they're certainly not in poverty. They're, they're, that's right about the median wage. Um, is it better that person get a dollar, $2 an hour pay increase, or should we be worried about the people that are working at the minimum wage or only working part-time or not able? That's often how issues are framed, and I think that's kind of a losing story in the sense that we don't want the idea that, okay, we have someone getting seven fifty an hour and we're going to make it so they get eight fifty an hour. Of course, that's good, but that's not... That, that that person getting eight fifty hours is not living a comfortable existence. Sure. So sure. the idea, okay, we we you know let's uh, let's congratulate ourselves. We got that person another buck an hour, and you know then go on to something else. That that can't be the answer. So pitting the middle class against the poor, to my view, is is totally a dead end. If the point is we want people to be able to enjoy secure, comfortable existences, you could you could beat down the middle class, but you aren't going to get the poor very far by giving them another dollar to an hour. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number to join the conversation. I'm talking with Dean Baker, co-director of the Center for Economic Policy, Economic and Policy Research. We're talking about the middle class, what it means to be middle class. What it means to be middle class today versus in the past. Uh, what does it mean to try to secure that status of middle class? Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine on the phones. Let's go to Tim in Clinton Township. Tim, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, thank you. I yeah. love the topic. Yeah, your show. Thanks. Go right ahead, Tim. Okay, um, I, along with uh, many other people, lost my job due to NAFTA and the other cra- crazy trade deals uh, that attacked the working people. Uh, and the cliche is uh, it was automation that wiped out the jobs. This was not. It's what I describe as greedomation. It was uh, the corporate political pact. And um, it was an attack on the unions and the non-union workers. And also, too, was... I'm a white guy, but white guy, other white guys lost their jobs. So did white women, black men, black women, brown men, and brown women. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tim, tell me more about the job that that you lost and why you think that NAFTA uh, caused that job loss. Well, it, uh, it was manufacturing. It was going on for about 75 years right across from Detroit on 8 Mile Road. Uh-huh. And um, was this auto manufacturing, Tim? Uh, no, it was drilling. It was in part auto. Uh, so like a supplier, but not much. Okay. And um, I believe it was wiped out because it was an attack because on uh, the, the working people, and uh, it was highly profitable profitable for the company, uh-huh. and uh, they just wanted more. Yeah. And so, in fact, I heard that our tax dollars. Uh, 
took out the, the machines, paid for the workers taking the machines out and taking them off to Mexico and other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. Tim, I, I, I really uh, appreciate your call. I'm really sorry about the circumstances. I hope you have been able to find work uh, since since that happened. I know a lot of people uh, struggle uh, to try to replace the income that they had in those in those former jobs. But I really appreciate your calling and uh, adding to the conversation. Dean Baker, this is one of your areas of specialty. Uh, talk about what the trade deal, the role of trade deals in, in you know, assaulting that security of the middle class, but then also the question of automation. I mean, there's a tension there as well. Which is responsible for the losses we've seen? Yeah, no, I really appreciate the call and the points. Uh, you know, it's been amazing to me and really kind of frustrating. I'm saying this as an economist because I'd like to think that I could have an honest conversation with other economists. And, and the effort to obfuscate issues here is, has been kind of amazing. So I don't know how many times I hear economists asserting, oh, these jobs are lost because of automation. And they look back over the last 50 years and they go, okay, suppose we had no increase in productivity over the last 50 years. How many jobs do we have in manufacturing today? Right. You know, and then they go, oh, look, we've lost all these jobs because of automation then, you know, productivity growth. And, of course, you know, we would have many more jobs, but we've had strong productivity growth last 50 years, sure. But that's not really the story. So if you look at the absolute number of jobs in manufacturing, and I've done this, so I'm not just a, you know, not off the top You're of my head. You're not just guessing. 1970 right? to 2000, it barely changes. It falls as a share of the total workforce, you know, because we, you know, workforce close to doubles over that period. But the absolute number of jobs is about 17.5 million in 1970. It's roughly 17.5 million. I think we're down by 200,000, you know, right. so relatively little change over, you know, a 30-year period, long period. Then we lose close to 4 million jobs from 2000 to 2007. And I say seven, I'm starting, I'm ending that before the Great Recession. Sure. So it's before the economy collapsed. That was trade. We had an explosion of our trade deficit. And, you know, to my mind, this isn't really arguable. When I have economists trying to tell me, you know, I really think of this as, I, uh, I hate to use the expression here, it's Trumpian. It's just making stuff <laughs> up. It's like three million illegal votes in California. No evidence for it. Obama tapped my phones. It, this is absurd. That was trade. Now, you can make an argument as to, did we benefit from it? Well, there were some benefits. We got the stuff at a lower price. So, yeah, we got some stuff at Walmart cheaper, no doubt about it. And if you weren't one of the people in competition with the workers in Mexico and China, so, you know, I often make this point, doctors are largely protected, dentists are largely protected, sure. higher paid professionals are largely protected. Well, you benefit because you got a lot of stuff cheaper. If you were one of those people, like Tim, you lost your job, probably got, you know, if you got another job, probably got lower pay. Um, well, you know, you can go to Walmart and get the stuff for a little less money, but that probably didn't make up for the fact that you're getting an awful lot less in your pay. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things, though, so I wonder if it's, if it's that it has to be an either or. So if you look at the auto industry, which, of course, is the, 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 the driver of the economy here and still to, to a large uh, part, uh, the driver of the manufacturing economy nationwide. If you look at the number of auto jobs that exist now versus 20 years ago, it's it's fewer. And those jobs didn't, some of those jobs went overseas. There's no question. They built cars in Mexico. They built cars in China, uh, uh, things like that. But 
a lot of those jobs did go away because of automation. Uh, and, and the kinds of manufacturing jobs that we now have in this country look really different than the, the, the jobs that they had before. That, that uh, scenario you were talking about before, somebody with a high school diploma being able to walk into a plant, get a job, hold that job for 30 or 40 years, and retire with you know, a full pension and, and, and health care, uh, that's also gone be- in part because uh, the skill level required for that job is is really different. So is it is it that it's not automation or is it that it's both automation and bad trade deals have sort of conspired to really give a double wallop to, to the middle? Yeah, class? I would say it's definitely both. And I guess, you know, in terms of trade, and this is one of the issues that, you know, Trump and, again, I have no idea what goes on in his thinking, but in terms of his rhetoric – I think it's definitely misplaced in the sense that we can't go back. Right. So we could say that, you know, the trade trade policies of the last two decades, quarter century, were bad for workers, and I think that's true. But it's not as though we have a way where we could get those jobs back. Right. So, you know, even, if, as, even though the, the president says he is going to get those jobs back, that's one of the things that I think is, is rather specious, one of the, the claims that's rather specious. That, that's right. And now, just to be clear, we can get more manufacturing jobs back. So, you know, we, we could have, we, we currently have a trade deficit around $550 billion a year. Suppose we got that down by three or $400 billion. Well, that might create another one, one and a half million, maybe even two million manufacturing jobs isn't uh-huh. altogether out of the question. Now, those aren't going to be the same jobs that we lost. They aren't necessarily going to be in the same place. So the jobs that were lost in Detroit, most of them probably wouldn't come back to Detroit. Some might, but most of them would come back other places. So I think that would be a good thing. But the idea that we'll somehow bring back those jobs, no, they're going to be different jobs and very often in different places. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 on the phones. Uh, Tom on Facebook says, the middle class in America, very few people are in it, yet most people claim to be in it. Mary Beth on Facebook says, Middle class and nearing retirement scared about the destruction of either or both of Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dean Baker, co-director for the Center for Economic and Policy Research, for being with us here on Detroit Today. Uh, Always good to talk with you about these subjects. And uh, up next, we are going to continue our conversation about the middle class with economist Jeffrey Dorfman. Uh, Stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. Anthony and Luna Pierre, Tom in Detroit, Aaron in Detroit, we will get to you. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking today about the middle class in America. Is it in indefinite decline? Are we ever going to see a middle class as strong as we saw in the 20th century here in places like Detroit, where it helped fuel the economy, the growth of the middle class, helped build the city to the 1.8 million people it had in the late 1950s. And uh, what are the economic factors at play in this loss of 
middle-class attainment, this loss of middle-class opportunity. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at the WDET Facebook page and go onto Twitter and hashtag us at Detroit Today, and we will work your comments into the conversation. Also joining me now to discuss this is Jeffrey Dorfman. He's a professor of agricultural and applied economics at the University of Georgia. Jeffrey, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks. Always happy to be with you. Yes. Uh, and uh, again, uh, 313-577-1019 on the phones. Uh, professor Dorfman, I want to start with you. Talk about this idea of the melting middle class, uh, what's causing it, and what are we supposed to do to turn that around? Sure. Well, this is interestingly sort of a good news, bad news story. The The middle class has been shrinking the way some people define it, um, although not all people, since there's no official definition right. of it. But to the extent it's shrinking, it's mostly because people are getting richer. So that's the good news. Now, if you're worried a lot about economic inequality, that might give you something to worry about, but at least we're not falling from middle class into poor nearly as much as we're going from middle class to upper middle class or rich. And and when you when you say that 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 I think bumps up against some realities we see on the other end of the scale about how poor people are, even if the growth of poverty itself is not universally happening. It is happening, for instance, in places like. Detroit, uh, other urban cores are seeing the number and percentage of poor people, especially among children, growing. But it's also the extent of their poverty and the inability to get from that place to someplace else that is that I think is 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 getting people uh, worried about again what what this what this definition of middle class is and who who can attain it. Well, I think it is true that one of the different features we've had in our economy since the start of the last recession is that people who are being hurt economically are staying hurt for much longer. Uh So that one of the most sort of standout features of the last recession was the long-term unemployment. People who lost their jobs took years to find a new one. Um, so there, there is this segment of the population that perhaps was middle class, lost a manufacturing job, and has been unable to get back to that economically comfortable lifestyle potentially for a decade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what are the things that you think we could do to reverse that trend, that long-term unemployment and other kinds of afflictions uh, on the poor that keep them poor, and what what could we do to to sort of build that oper- that that ladder back uh, sure. into the middle class? I, I think there's a couple of things we should do. One, we need less government intervention. Um, that really slowed the economy down from reallocating resources to faster growing industries. So bailing out the banks, bailing out the auto companies wasn't helpful to people that were hurt that way. Um, We should stop raising the minimum wage, which makes it harder for people with low skills to get jobs, and we should increase the earned income tax credit so that they can get jobs and the government will top it up instead of telling businesses, pay these people a lot or don't hire them at all, because unfortunately the businesses are choosing not to hire them at all. Right, right. And then I wish we would get away from sort of the ex-post policies where we're doing now where we say, Let's see what happens, and then we'll help people who suffer. 
and instead spend our money on education so that people will have the job skills to not need our help. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that's definitely true is that uh, the, the skill requirements for employment, especially for secure long-term employment, are they look different today than they did 20 or 30 years ago. And yet the skill set, the skill base among workers has not, has not kept pace. That's correct. I mean, to the extent that manufacturing companies in the U.S. are still hiring workers, they generally have a lot of trouble finding those workers because they can't find ones with the right skills they need for modern manufacturing. So we do need to rethink our job skills. We do need to rethink our job training. I wish we stopped pushing college to so many people in the sense that I think too many people see it as I need to go get a four-year degree from a liberal arts college, which is great, but what a lot of people need is to go to a community college and take a class in becoming a radiology technician or um, something else that people are hiring for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. Drew in Detroit, welcome to Detroit Today. You there, Drew? Oh, hello. Yeah, I didn't hear my name. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, So I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum of your guest right now. I really believe that we need to evolve long term as a not not as a species, but as humans, really. And mechanization um, will kind of oust us and it'll engulf this divide that's been growing. And that brings me to my point where uh, the socialization of income this concept of universal basic income that was brought forward by, uh, I heard it through Elon Musk, the owner of Tesla. Yeah. And uh, it's basically that machines are going to take all our jobs long term. Yeah. And it's actually a good thing because it will open up mankind to... To being able to do other things, sure. Yeah, yeah. things you want to do and you're not degraded by our capitalist wage. Yeah, uh, Drew, I'm, I'm glad you called and made that point. It's a very interesting uh, idea to inject into the conversation. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Dorfman, essentially this idea that work is going away, right? That, that it's leaving us as human beings and then uh, there is this need to, to sort of provide a, a, a basic... Uh, allowance, really, to people who who will not be able to find work, who will not be able to work, and that will free them up to do some other things, contribute in other ways to society. What, where does that fit into your vision of all of this? Um, so I, I don't believe the people who think all the jobs are going away. Part of that has to do with coming out of agricultural economics, where agriculture used to employ 90% of the people now farmers make up 1% of the population, and yet the other 89% all got jobs. So software engineer is a job that didn't exist 50 years ago. We don't know what the jobs that don't exist yet will be in 50 years, but there'll be something. So I'm not worried about the robots taking our jobs. Well, but do you, do you feel like, I mean, do you feel like mass employment on the scale that we had with manufacturing is going to be possible in the knowledge Economy. I mean, there's, there hasn't been a need for it so far. So I, I still think there'll be plenty of jobs. Now, universal basic income is an interesting idea. I have some problems with it uh-huh. in the sense that they seem to want, um, the, the way they want to fund it is often something I have a problem with, uh, where essentially they're just going to take money from the people who own <laughs> the machines that take our jobs, I guess. 
But I will say I like it much better in most ways than our current welfare system because it does have fewer strings. It is less condescending to the poor. It is less distortionary of economic decisions. You know, there's too many people now that get government benefits that if they get a raise or if they earn more money, they lose so many benefits that it actually doesn't pay for them to try and get ahead. Right. Right. Universal basic income does solve those problems, and, and I like those features of it. Yeah. Uh, again, Drew, thanks very much for the call uh, and, the, and the comments there. Let's go to Anthony in Luna Pier. Anthony, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Go ahead. Um, we need to properly fund public education. I mean, granted, everybody can't go to college, but if you give them a good base, then those who can't go to college can go to a trade skill school. Mm-hmm. You can't say, well, everybody shouldn't go to a university or college, but everybody still don't have the tools necessary to get into a trade school. We took auto shop and a wood shop out of public education. Sure. So where are these people supposed to go? And then when you hear people say, well, we need less government regulation, but you never hear them say, well, we need less corporate welfare. Uh, we need to stop giving billionaires uh, land for free to build stadiums on taxpayer dimes while we're foreclosing on middle class people's houses who owe three years of taxes at maybe six or seven thousand dollars. Sure. But we can give millions of dollars of free land to build a stadium on taxpayer dimes. Yeah, uh, Anthony. I mean, I think the, the, those are great. Those are great questions. I want to give our guest Jeffrey Dorfman a, a chance to, to address them. But thank you very much for the call. So, I mean, Stephen, I, I, would, I would say I think Anthony is channeling many of my Forbes columns. I completely agree with him that we should stop public financing the stadiums and yeah. giving money to billionaires to, for that purpose. Uh, I, I do think we need to reform education and encourage more people to take classes like auto mechanics and community college classes. I don't know that more money is the problem. We've pretty much proven that giving our current education system more money doesn't improve it. I think partly we now ask schools to do so many things other than educate the children that it makes it much harder for them to also do a good job. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the question, though, is always uh, if the schools don't do those things, for instance, uh, provide kids with breakfast, provide the kind of social support for families uh, that doesn't exist in the community anymore because of the lack of government funding. Where where else would people get those things? And you cannot educate kids uh, outside the context of those things taking place. I, I don't know that I have a the solution to where would you do those things instead. But I do think we need to recognize that we're putting our schools in an impossible position. We're asking a lot of them, yeah. And, yeah. and, and if they're going to do those things, they need money to do it. I mean, those things are not free. Those things cost, in fact, more than... Uh, just the the basic cost of having a teacher uh, and a principal and and other people running a school and educating kids, you need money to do these other these other things. Right. Yeah. So I think I think the key part of Anthony's point is important is is more vocational training would help. We have to have for the people who aren't going to become software engineers. Right. We have to do something. You know, certified welders make seventy five thousand dollars a year and up. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. we can't get enough of them. But we can't get them because they're not. Uh, you have to be trained in That's order right. to do that. 
All right, Jeffrey Dorfman, Professor of Agricultural and Applied Economics at the University of Georgia, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. If you can't catch uh, the live broadcast of Detroit today, you can always go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe and download and listen to it anytime. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. See you tomorrow.